This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamperin this morning. Let me tell you what's coming up on the podcast this morning. We're going to be talking about Hamilton McMaster's uh, Children's Hospital and reports of kids being treated in the hallways. Is this the case? The president of Mac Children's Hospital will join us to talk about that. Our water rates are going up. We will tell you how much. Talk to Mike Zagarek, the head of finance, about that. Tipping. People are getting a little fed up, it seems, with tipping. We'll talk. We're going to talk about new AI technology and how it's impacting a magazine that you know about, not in a good way. It's a bizarre, bizarre story. Giving Tuesday, we will talk for someone from McMaster and from the Catholic Children's Aid Society of Hamilton about opportunities to give. We'll get into some Ontario politics with Colin DeMello and the Trans-Siberian Orchestra is coming to this area we're going to talk to the lead guitarist of the awesome, fantastic, amazing Trans-Siberian Orchestra. All coming up. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This is um, the time of year when we start getting into budget deliberations at City Council and other issues around what we will pay to cover the cost of being a resident of Hamilton, this is, and, and every other city, quite frankly, every other city is getting into the exact same thing right now. The first salvo, I guess, if you want to say, in what we might see as far as additional costs next year, if you're a homeowner, is the water rate. Now, the good news, it seems, is that we're not, by all accounts, going to get hit with the 20% that was talked about at one time. However, well, let me bring in Mike Zagarek. He is the general manager of finance and corporate services. Um, Mike, it is looking, good morning, by the way. I appreciate you doing this. Um, good morning, Scott. It is looking like it's going to be about a 10% increase in our water rate. So about $88, I believe, was the number for the average home. Why so much this year? Uh, so 10% is actually in line with what staff were projecting last year for 2024. Um as you stated, it is lower than the just short of 20% we were projecting earlier in the year for 2024. So so there's been a few changes in the budget and what was presented and approved at committee um, yesterday since the fall. And some of those changes were that staff identified some savings in the budget that was presented. We identified approximately $46 million in capital savings that reduced the funding necessary for infrastructure for 2024. Uh, we also uh, deferred some capital projects, infrastructure projects, about $85 million because those projects weren't ready to go in 2024. They're still in that planning and environmental assessment uh, state. Um, we identified about $1.3 million in operating savings. And then we had the mayor's directive for the 2024 budget, which was to balance affordability for ratepayers with the investments necessary to support the water and wastewater um, budget in 2024. If the if what you're saying is that some of the projects weren't ready and therefore that was going to be deferred, does this mean that we're going to get 10% this year, but that 20% is going to land on us next year? Or... Is that not any longer, is 20% at some point no longer a thing? So 20% is no longer a thing for 2024, and staff are projecting for 2025 a further 10% increase. And in fact, we're projecting 10% increases each and every year 
beyond 2025 for the 10-year forecast. And, and Scott, what's really driving the water and wastewater budget, and it's driven water wastewater budgets in Hamilton in the past and across the province, this is principally a capital or infrastructure-intensive service. And the municipality and, and ratepayers, we all share in about $15 billion of water and wastewater assets. And we have to maintain those assets and grow those services as the community grows. And so that was one of the driving uh, themes to the 2024 budget and will be in the future. About 60% of the rate increases are going towards infrastructure capital financing. But what changed in 2024, Scott, is who pays for, for the infrastructure. So prior to 2024, it was a balance between developers and ratepayers. But because of some provincial rules that changed for 2024, we saw a shift. Ratepayers now are expected to pay more of the costs related to growth. And that's where uh, staff recommended phasing in some of those impacts by using reserves. So again, infrastructure, prominent in water wastewater services, but really one of the driving factors to 2024 is who pays for the infrastructure and ratepayers are having to absorb uh, more of the cost for growth, and that's driving about half of the 10% increase for 2024. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned also the mayor's directive, and and, and clearly uh, Mayor Horvath has mentioned um, several weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, that when the 14.2% potential tax increase was mentioned, she would like to offset that, as you've t- touched on, with reserves and other things. Is it a... If we start dipping into reserves for this, do we run the risk down the road of reducing those reserves so we run into a problem where we don't have those reserves when we need them for something other than to cut back on taxes? Reserves are necessary. You know, they're necessary to protect uh, ratepayers and municipality if there were to be some sort of an event that wasn't planned for. Similar to a household, if your if your roof fails. And it's important to have some savings in place to repair that roof. Uh, It is a risk in terms of using reserves. What staff have presented and committee approved yesterday was a four-year plan. So to draw on reserves starting in 2024, but to phase that out by 2027 and start to replenish those reserves. And and again, the principal reason for drawing on those reserves is this rule change by the province around growth and who pays for growth. And rather than pass on a 15% increase, and, and that's what we would be looking at for 2024, is a 15% increase if we didn't draw on reserves for 2024. So again, the plan is we'll draw on reserves for four years, wean ourselves off the reliance on reserves, and replenish reserves in future years. But, but Scott, what's important to note is, you know, there's, there's opportunity to reverse this, and really that opportunity is through partnership with the federal provincial government. Mm is uh, if we're successful in getting infrastructure funding from senior levels of government for this infrastructure intensive service, we can reduce our reliance on reserves, reduce our reliance on debt. And that's a win-win for, for all levels of government and for ratepayers. Mike, just before I let you go, and um, there has been a lot of talk about, and you even alluded to it and, and accurately, of course, about you know changes in provincial rules and things where some extra money now is being required from the municipality rather than developers or from ratepayers rather than developers. Changes. Has Hamilton got any different requirements than any other city 
in Ontario as a result of these rules. Are there any rules that changed that affect Hamilton more than other places in the province? The rules are consistent across the province. It really depends on a municipality's um, growth forecast. For a municipality like Hamilton, that's you know we're projected to see uh, you know significant additional growth. Is it, it impacts a municipality with higher growth more so than a more mature municipality? It's uh, look. The news is we will take the news that it's not twenty percent. That is that is good news. We'll <laughs> take that. Ten uh, percent is still you know it's still big, but we will take the news that it's not twenty. It's Giving Tuesday. We'll try to be optimistic about this today. Uh, Mike Zagarek, General Manager of Finance and Corporate Services. Always appreciate having you on, Mike, and your expertise. Thanks for this. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a quote from Dr. April Cam at McMaster Children's Hospital. We are seeing an increase in children being admitted with influenza, RSV, and COVID significantly up from last week, and we just anticipate it to continue to climb. We are unfortunately at the point where we are sometimes seeing children and teens in hallway beds just because... We are so full. Are we really? Is McMaster, now back to me now, not her anymore. Is McMaster really at the point where kids are now being treated in hallways? Well, let me bring in Bruce Squires, president of McMaster Children's Hospital, joins us now. Bruce, thank you for this. Uh, Thanks very much. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. So this is, anytime we hear about people being treated in hallways, I don't know that the treatment they're getting is any worse, but it certainly sounds like things are not, exactly where we would want their t- them to be. Are, are we, in fact, having kids having to be treated in hallways right now? Well, it's really important to, uh, to, to note this kind of the specifics around what we're talking about, Scott. First of all, yeah, we, we are um, in that annual viral season, um, which, you know, for many children uh, and, and youth means uh, they, uh, you know, they come down with those bugs that cause cough, maybe it's flu, um, maybe they have fever, maybe the trouble breathing. And so sometimes um, uh, the, the kind of the acuity of that situation will require uh, the parents to, uh, to, to visit our emergency department or another emergency department. The volumes of, of, of kids now have, uh, have peaked um, the number of kids who need to come into our ID have, have peaked to a sort, sort of a similar level to what we were experiencing uh, last year. We've put a number of things in place to um, ensure that we can see those children as, as quickly as possible and ideally identify, you know, who are the kids who, with a little bit of management appropriately, um, can return home with, uh, with their par- parents, who are those that need to stay in the hospital for a, uh, a little bit longer, and who are those who the, the, the situation may um, require them to be ad- admitted to the hospital. In order to do that with um, the again the the infrastructure we have, um, what we'll need to do is utilize in our emergency department um, some of the hallways because we may have in our uh, actual uh, in our actual kind of private rooms uh, patients who are more acute. Uh, kids who may need to be uh, admitted for a longer period. So the use of the hallways in um, in our emergency department, not something we ever like to do, but it is something that sometimes happens in periods of surge because we're just not built mm. big enough. I do want to clarify that that uh, that fortunately at McMaster Children's Hospital, 
we do not have to use uh, our hallways um, for uh, admitted patients on our inpatient wards and our critical care units or really anywhere else in, uh, in the hospital. So the use of of, uh, of a hallway as an alternative space in our emergency department, really to, to allow us to ensure that we're assessing uh, quickly children, not having them have to sit as long in our waiting rooms, which are which are, are quite full is, it's not something we like to do, but it's actually a, um, uh, a useful approach so as to, again, assist flow. As they say, assess those, uh, those kids, and hopefully if you identify uh, that uh, with appropriate uh, treatment, maybe follow up uh, that they can uh, can return mm. home. So, is there when kids come in with these respiratory things? Is it are they only able to be in one area? And the reason I ask that question is because I mean the health hospital is reasonably large. The story says that there were twenty seven sick enough to be admitted to hospital as of November the twentieth. I'm assuming that means that those who come in with these illnesses have to be in a certain area because it's talking about just how busy it is. If they could be anywhere in the hospital, presumably you would have room for those. It must just be that this one area is tight. Am I correct? Well, again, you, you when you're using your emergency department, uh, you want to ensure that um, in an efficient manner, we can get uh, the health professionals, the physicians, the nurses, the others to be able to assess them. So we we certainly don't um, don't uh, want to uh, to spread kids across the hospital when they're being assessed. Um, so it's kind of a matter of how to do it most effectively. And again, the the core there is. Um, uh, move children as quickly as possible in for the assessment of their condition, um, ideally then for the uh, identification of whether they're able to, uh, as I said, return home with maybe a follow-up management uh, just with their family or with the family physician or whether they need to stay in the hospital a little bit longer for uh, for observation, maybe some uh, more aggressive treatment. And then for the small number, although it is significant at this point, those who, who need to uh, be admitted for a period of time. And ideally, we can move them as quickly as possible up to one of our inpatient floors. Bruce, we only have 30 seconds, so I apologize that you don't have a ton of time here. But um, because it's been so busy right now, if you have a kid who has one of these illnesses or you believe they do, is MAC still the best place to take your kid or should they be looking elsewhere to go? Well, you always want to assess um, uh, the, uh, the the symptoms of your uh, that your child is experiencing. Um, certainly, uh, if primary care, your family physician, your primary care team. Um, is an appropriate place um, for, uh, for 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 many uh, conditions. We also have urgent care centers here in Hamilton on both sides of the city in the east and and the west. Um, but uh, but of course, uh, McMaster Children's is also here, um, particularly when you are very concerned about um, the, uh, the 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 condition of your of your child or youth. So uh, fortunately, there's a number of choices available for uh, for uh, for parents um, and for children and youth. And you know, one of the ways you can always assess is uh, to visit uh, visit our website at uh, at, at Hamilton Health Sciences uh, for guidance, really to help you in kind of making that decision. That is Bruce Squires. He is the president of McMaster Children's Hospital. Bruce, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Probably been in a store lately 
or a restaurant or a coffee shop or a, anywhere almost. And as you're debiting your card there, it is asking you, would you like to tip? And I think that most people, most people, if they are in a restaurant, are happy to do that. I think that's standard operating procedure. I think we have done that for a long time, and I think that it's considered good manners and part of the cost, quite honestly. But what about all these other places? And what about places where there's not even any human interaction? I'm self-checking out, and it's still asking me if I want to leave a tip. That happens now. Have we reached the point where tipping has completely gone out of control. Well, there are surveys now here in Canada that say, yeah, a lot of people, like way more than half, almost two-thirds, say tipping has become a problem. Tracy McGregor is Vice President of Ontario at Restaurants Canada, joins us now. Tracy, good morning. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I am terrific. How are you doing? I'm good. What about this? I I mean, uh, as I said off the top, I think when most people go to a restaurant, they are fine and happy to leave a tip for their server, but this has gone from being a thing for waiters or waitresses into pretty much every other facet of every other industry. And I'm wondering if that's almost hurting waiters or waitresses now because people are just becoming fatigued with this. Yeah. And I think that fatigue, I mean, I'm a consumer, you're a consumer, even serving you in the restaurant. So they're seeing it. And certainly in those prompts, you know, it reminds you every time you pay for something. Um, but I think, you know, the, the point you're making around historically, traditionally, all around the world, in restaurants, it's something we're used to doing. And, and people have their own traditions and thoughts around that. Some people tipped based on the service that they've had. Some people have rate that they use. So um, I think it's important that people remember they still have the option on all of those prompts that are they're there for convenience, but you still can always override those. Do, can you? And, and look, I'm not trying to be the, the, the jerk who says I'm not going to tip the <laughs> waiter, but once upon a time, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because it, I believe that original, I mean, tipping was originally a, a, a thing for good service. And then it became kind of an accepted, well, you always leave a tip unless the service is truly atrocious. I mean, really, that's what it became. But could you, what would happen now, today, if you walk out of a restaurant without giving a tip? I, I, I'm not sure you're not going to be either chased down or given the most stink eye of stink eyes if you were to do that. Well, I mean, it's hard to say, right? I mean, if you received great service and that person did everything that they could to please you and you didn't leave a tip, I'm sure they would, you know, take that personally um, as, you know, uh, a concern about, you know, what did they do wrong? And, and so there is some of that. But I think ultimately, you know, we've come to that and that's something that, <laughs> that you know, per- people have have come to, but, but it really is an option. I mean, I, I vary my tip based on the service I receive. Um, so, and I think there are people that, that still do that and others will hit the easiest prompt, the first prompt that comes Mm. up or the top prompt, depending who they are. One of the Um, issues, Tracy, around this too, that I think a lot of people are, are trying to figure out right now and navigate through is there for the longest time, I mean, years, 15% was kind of considered the standard, I think. And now you will have options and sometimes it's as high as 30% or even higher than that on these prompts. And I think, I mean, am I, I, I think people feel guilty if they only give 15% now. And I don't know that 15% is cheaping out, but I think a lot of people almost feel guilty if they're only giving that. 
Yeah, and you know, those prompts change. And, and I think uh, in April 2022, for example, Restaurants Canada did a survey and Canadians were tipping on average 17.6% of their bill at that time. So it's kind of, you know, guesswork on putting those prompts there based on what people are doing. And, and I appreciate coming out of COVID, people were tipping higher. So we do encourage restaurants to, you know, take a look at, at those prompts and adjust them based on what people are doing. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting, and it's also that we're seeing tipping come up everywhere where you didn't see it in previously, like vets and yeah, you know, um, yeah. grocery stores. You can see it in, in different places, and so I think that's where some of that. Let me ask you a really tricky one, because when I go to a restaurant, I give a tip that goes generally, I think, to the wait staff. I know sometimes it's divided up and some of it goes to the kitchen, but if I go to, say, a coffee shop, the person, the barista who makes my coffee is kind of like the person in the kitchen who makes my eggs and bacon or whatever else, who I don't usually tip. Am I supposed to tip a barista every time or is them making the coffee what I'm paying my $6 for? And again, that's personal. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're going to a place and they're making you a wonderful design on your coffee, perhaps. Um, and, you know, it's it's those prompts are there for anyone who uses um, those types of machines for debiting. Has there been, we only have a second left here, but yeah. has there been any real move? I know people have talked about just making it part of the bill uh, and, yeah. and getting away with it. Has that, has that had any real traction or is that just something people have thrown around? No, we are seeing actually some restaurants doing that, um, trying different things. But, I mean, they're doing it against the backdrop of rising costs on everything. So that menu inflation is also a concern, uh, especially right now when we're all feeling that pinch of the economy. So it, it is a big balance, and it's something you don't enter into lightly. You have to discuss it with your staff, make sure they're comfortable. Um, and you're right, like there are back, a lot of times those tips are shared. Um, because the whole experience is also predicated on what the kitchen did and how good that food is. That is Tracy McGregor. She is the Vice President for Ontario at Restaurants Canada. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Thank you. Uh, while uh, while you're pondering that one, by the way, and just before we go to the news, our Twitter poll or X poll question today, has tipping gone out of control? Very simple question. Yes, it's too much. No, it's deserved or make it part of the bill. Those are your options today. Go cast your vote. Uh, go, look, go to Twitter or X. Go to 900CHML. Has tipping gone out of control? Yes, it's too much. No, it is deserved. Or make it part of the bill. Love to hear from you on that one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. According to CNN, which is reporting on a report by a magazine called Futurism, Sports Illustrated ran a bunch of articles over a period of time that were written by artificial intelligence. But the articles weren't just written by artificial intelligence. They were under fake author names with headshots, with photos and bios of these writers who don't exist but were apparently the authors of these pieces. One of them uh, that has been pulled out and given up here, Drew Ortiz, and good-looking guy, uh, young guy. Drew likes to say he grew up in the wild, which is partially true. He grew up in a farmhouse surrounded by woods, fields, and a creek. It goes on from there. This is, however, according to CNN and Futurism, not a real person. It's a headshot that was bought from a website where you can buy headshots, artificially intelligence-created not even a real person. 
And anyway, Sports Illustrated has now pulled these articles, according to the report, and many of the, or a number of writers for Sports Illustrated, the actual writers expressing outrage and horror that this was happening. It is, uh, it, it is a bizarre situation. Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist, joins us now. Carmi, how are you this morning? I am well. I promise you, I'm the human Carmi, not the <laughs> yeah, AI right. generated Carmi. Yeah, you Scott. sound you sound human, not not so stilted. <laughs> this uh, look, I, I first of all, I am shocked that Sports Illustrated, the magazine that I grew up revering and reading religiously, the greatest sports writing in the world, has come to this. But what a bizarre thing that not only that you're having some articles that may be written by AI. There, there are a number of publications where short briefs or whatever might be done by that now. That's just reality. But this is taking it to a whole new level. Yeah, it all comes down to disclosure. I mean, the for example, the Associated Press has been using AI for a, a few years now to uh, pull together minor league baseball summaries. And those are it's pretty much the same thing every game. Who won, who lost, you know, what are the notable statistics? And so that's something that AI does particularly well. It's not really a good use of a human's time. It's fairly entry level. So they sort of handed it over to the technology and they disclose when they do that. They make it very clear. And I think that's really the, the the core of the argument here is that if you're going to be using AI, make it obvious to your audience that that's what you're doing so they can make a conscious decision about you know whether they want to consume it or even when they're consuming it, sort of how they choose to consume it. Whereas in this case, they tried to pass off that content as uh, real and as created by real people, whereas you know, all it took was for a publication, in this case, futurism, to do uh, a couple of reverse image searches, realize that something was slightly amiss, and they've been trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that more and more where it's it's cheaper and easier for publications like Sports Illustrated to hand off some of the, the lower end writing to uh, machines. Uh, and they're trying to get away with it by, you know, pretending passing it off as real. Um, and that's just dirty pool. If you're going to use AI, at least be honest about it. Uh, Sports Illustrated's union, uh, this is according to CNN, this is in their story, here's a quote, if true, these practices violate everything we believe in about journalism, the union said in a statement, we deplore being associated with something so disrespectful to our readers. I would, I'm glad they say that, mm-hmm. uh, but I also, I wonder if this is not something that is the natural, no, I'm not, or I'm not endorsing it, but I wonder if this is not the natural flow of where a technology like this is going to go, that we're going to see more and more stuff like this, because you don't want, I don't think if you're a company to say, well, we're not actually hiring people. We're not employing people. You don't want to necessarily tell people that you want to make it look like you're still a great employer or you're still doing what you've always done. I, I, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm surprised at Sports Illustrated, but I'm not surprised that this has happened, period. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as a writer, uh, the the trend chills me because you know the potential for machines to replace me and everyone else that I grew up with and went to journalism school with and you know based our entire careers around our ability to string words together is kind of frightening, right? The the, the technology is could make us all obsolete. Um, and but at the same time, you look at a publication like so like Sports Illustrated and they have a brand. You talked about it in the intro, a revered brand. Uh, and and you know if, if 
if you very quietly uh, you know, move into AI created content without telling anyone about it, you risk damaging that brand. So how do you uh, hold the line on costs? We know that the business of journalism has changed significantly over the last few years, thanks to technology. Uh, so how do you hold the line on costs while still maintaining your brand? And how do you keep humans in the loop? There are ways to use AI, not as a replacement for human writers, but as a, an addition to, and I include some AI tools in my workflow to help me produce more, produce it better, but certainly not to completely replace all of the writing that I do. We're going to figure that out over the next few years. That's really the challenge of our time, but um, certainly trying to use AI to wholesale replace humanity uh, and try to get away with it by passing off uh, an actual author or uh, an AI generated author as a real one uh, is, is I, I think we can all acknowledge and agree that ethically and morally, that's really not where you want a revered brand, a revered publication like Sports Illustrated to go. This though is one example. It's a still photo. It's, it's online. We've seen uh, the ability now with video to adjust uh, images to make it look like people are saying things they aren't to put faces on bodies that aren't the faces and, and in a way that is so convincing that, yeah, you know what, if you're really, really looking really carefully and you're a bit of an expert at it, you can probably find it. But there's now a lot of people who would be fooled by this. I don't expect this is going to be the last time and I don't think it's going to stop here. I think we're going to see this online. I think we're going to see this in moving pictures and, and I mean, video like online, not just stills. I, I think this is going to be everywhere. And I think it's soon going to be impossible to tell what is and what isn't real. Certainly. And I, I hate to sound like a defeatist, Scott, but I completely agree with you. The technology is uh, getting better almost by the day. The fidelity of imagery, of video, of audio, uh, thanks to image generators and video generators uh, that also are improving very rapidly, uh, means that even when we lean in really closely, it'll be increasingly difficult to tell the difference between real and AI created. Right now, you sort of can tell if you listen to the audio, it's somewhat, you know, sort of, it's not quite smooth. It doesn't really sound like like them, you can kind of tell uh, six months from now, a year from now, a couple years from now, that may be a very different story. And so we need uh, better tools. We need better rules uh, so that companies like Sports Illustrated abide by them uh, to protect the markets, to protect consumers so they know what they're getting. Uh, and also to ensure that you know people who are working in the industry still have a reasonable chance of pursuing a career. Uh, we know that technology has a kind of a destructive capability. That's always been the case. But AI raises that to a new level and we owe it to ourselves as a society to figure that out before there is more carnage ahead of us. Mm. We have to get better at managing this transition. We got to go, but I can just imagine we've got an American election coming up. We'll eventually have a Canadian <sighs> election coming up. The possibility mm. of a video of one of the candidates saying something outrageous that affects the election that we later find out was not real, I would argue is incredibly high right now. And, oh, yeah. uh, hopefully that is not what ends up happening, but it's, it's very, very possible with the way technology is. Uh, that is Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Nobody's stopping you from giving any day, but today a bit of a reminder day, Giving Tuesday. And one of the places where you could give if you are feeling, you know, I'm getting ready to spend money on Christmas. But before I do that, I would like to give, you know, some people, let me just say this before we get going here. Some people, and I completely understand this. 
Some people say, I'm going to buy my Christmas stuff, and then if I have any left over, I'll give. Other people say, I'm going to give, and then what I have left over, I'll spend on Christmas. There's a difference. Uh, the Give the Gift of Joy campaign returns to the Catholic Children's Aid Society of Hamilton this year. Roger Ali is the Director of Fund Development and Communications with the Catholic Children's Aid Society. He is joining us now. Roger, how are you? I'm well. Good morning and happy Giving Tuesday. Thank you to you as well. I hope it is, uh, I hope it is a good Giving Tuesday for the Catholic Children's Aid Society. What is the, um, what is the Give the Gift of Joy campaign? The Give the Gift of Joy campaign is an opportunity to make monetary donations to our agency during the holiday season. It is a way of giving back, giving a portion of funds you set aside for year-end giving. And as you were saying, it's also deciding how much you want to give to support the agency that's doing good work for children and youth and families in our community. You know, it's interesting because children's aid societies, they do amazing work. My wife actually worked for children's aid when she first started as a social worker. So I know all about it. And yet, you know what? It's, it sometimes can be a tough one because children's aid societies are often seen as a place where it's all about families and, and kids having to be, you know, taken out of homes and things like that. How do you, how do you, how do you not convince, how do you tell people what children's aid does and make it a positive-sounding thing? Because it is, it's just sometimes a harder sell. You know, so it is. And, you know, one of the things that most people don't know is 99% of the time children remain in their birth home. So, you know, our role is to support families, to provide that, uh, I would say, uh, circle of safety and to ensure that we can work with families and strengthen their units. So it, it's really a, a partnership and a way in which we can strengthen and support families who, you know, are having some challenges. And, and uh, our, our role is, is really as that partner at the end of the day. Why, though, does Catholic Children's Aid need the Give the Gift of Joy? Why do you need donations? Are you not, is your work not covered by government? You know, we always get that asked that question, and, and the Ministry of Children, Community, and Social Services does fund our organization, but there are funding reductions, and there are basic needs that, you know, uh, that aren't met. And, and some of those examples is, supporting youth uh, with a bursary to help them with stable housing. We have several kin families that are taking care of a family member, and they need some help to uh, furnish a room, to buy a mattress. And, and the big piece as well is many of our families are experiencing food insecurity. So uh, a gift card goes a long way uh, to, you know, provide a, a meal at this time of year. Uh, obviously, those three, I mean, housing and, uh, and food are enormous things. We hear a lot about them these days, and, I, and I, I also wonder about that. Does there come a point when you worry that people become fatigued with hearing this? And not that those needs don't ever go away. They do, and we know they are bigger now. We just on the news uh, either yesterday or today, I can't even remember, but I know I've been hearing about the, the huge numbers even going to food banks um, is it, do you worry about fatigue when so many needs are out there and so many things are needing people to help? 
I do. Uh, you know that there are many causes and many requests in particular at this time. I think the bigger worry for me is the the broader social issues we're trying to address, like mental health issues, uh, housing, food insecurity. So, you know, at the end of the day, donations make a difference in in providing the support, in closing the gap. So, it's um, it's it's a bit of a dilemma because uh, philanthropy is a catalyst to change, and at the same time, the needs are growing, and you're hearing a lot about it. Uh, no question. Uh, if people are interested, and I hope they are, they can go to HCCAS, Hamilton Catholic Children's Aid Society CA, and they can find the give uh, give the gift of joy link there, and they can look it up, and they can find ways to donate. Uh, it is certainly a worthy cause. Roger, I uh, really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you, and all gifts are matched during the holiday season, so uh, here's your opportunity. Fantastic. Roger Ali, uh, the Director of Fund Development and Communications with the Catholic Children's Aid Society. Really appreciate you doing this. HCCAS.ca if you are interested. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Not all that long ago when Doug Ford and Olivia Chow were not all that friendly with each other. They, they couldn't really say very much nice things about each other. And we thought, oh, how's this going to work? Mayor of the biggest city in the province and the country and the, the premier butting heads. Well, all of a sudden, best buddies. And they made a big deal yesterday where the province uploads, the, the city uploads responsibility for the Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway. And things are traded back and forth and the city somehow gets out of its, or a big part of gets out of its giant budget hole. And then you hear this and you think to yourself as you drum your fingers, hmm, could this happen here? Colin DeMello is the Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News joins us now. Colin, how are you this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I, well, thrilled that you can do this. I, I, as I say, my first thought when I heard this was, well, geez, we've got a Red Hill Creek Expressway report coming out this week that could cost us a lot, and we've got the link that always needs repairs. I'm guessing there's probably a whole lot of cities that saw this deal yesterday and immediately started drumming their fingers saying, how do we get in on this action? Well, and the premier was asked that yesterday. I mean, is the same deal applicable to other municipalities that might be looking at their own uh, bottom lines, wondering, you know, how are we going to get out of our own fiscal hole? I mean, Toronto is not dissimilar from any other municipality in that municipalities cannot run a deficit by law. So, you know, they have to rely on either service cuts, budget cuts, or increasing taxes or trying to figure out new ways to get in revenue. So, you know, it, Toronto might be kind of the obviously the biggest city in, in the province and, you know, what the premier sees as the economic engine of the province. But many other municipalities are going to be looking at this saying, well, why is Toronto kind of the the, the lone benefactor of these kind of provincial uh, billions of dollars? The, the, the difference is, though, is that the, the premier kind of said, look, I mean, there are two major expressways that run through the city that are used by commuters from Oakville, Hamilton, Burlington, uh, you know, and the 905, that is solely shouldered by the city of Toronto, and they, they can't really, you know, keep paying to maintain it. And the other part of this deal was that Toronto had something that Ontario wanted, and that's Ontario Place. Uh, the, the lands are provincial, but the city could have put up a lot of 
red tape to slow down the project. So that's the exchange here. We'll take your highways. You give us a free pass uh, to building Ontario Place. Does this, I mean, I guess the question if you're a Toronto taxpayer and then ultimately if this were to extend elsewhere is the city seems to have not a clean slate, but has a chance now to at least be financially in better position. Do they show restraint? And that would be always the, the concern or the question for me is now, let's say that Hamilton got a similar deal. Does this mean now that you have more money to spend or does this mean, no, we're going to keep it calm and we're going to try and maintain the same level of spending and keep the cost down. That's, that's, I guess that's not really the province's issue to deal with, but I just wonder how long until they come back again. Well, I think the way the, the city of Toronto is viewing this is every dollar that's no longer coming out of the city of Toronto's budget for things like highway uh, capital repair and for purchasing new subways or for transit safety, they can start to reinvest in different places, right? So this, this deal is innovative in the sense that uh, the province is going to look for empty, unused provincial lands within the city of Toronto. They're going to give it to the city of Toronto so that they can build uh, affordable housing. So money that they save on transit infrastructure could go towards kind of the permitting process or the, you know, the development process of affordable housing. I, I, we're talking about a, you know, a left-leaning progressive mayor who, uh, you know, skews NDP. And so for her, maintaining a lot of the services is a priority. So I think, you know, in my conversations with the city of Toronto, they seem to be indicating that you know they still have about a 900 million dollar shortfall they're looking to the federal government to fill some of that gap and whatever else they can't fill they might have to find you know an increase to the tax burden but instead of just putting it all on taxpayers you know, Olivia Chow's managed to find some ways to kind of chip away at the deficit without lifting a single finger she has the province and maybe the federal government doing it for her Changing tack just a bit, because we only have you for a couple minutes. Um, Sarah Jama, who is seemingly always in the news here in Hamilton now, uh, they the NDP had their triennial provincial council on the weekend and voted not to reinstate her into the party. This is interesting, if only because until now, it's kind of been Merritt Stiles, the leader of the NDP, who's been under fire from Jama's constituents or, or supporters. Now it looks like her party, not just the leader, but her party doesn't really want her back either. No, I mean, so at the provincial council, there was one motion that came up to talk about um, Sarah Jama returning to the caucus, and that was resoundly rejected by the party membership as well. Um, they did, though, agree that, you know, perhaps the NDP should be fighting to have her, um, her censure revoked at Queen's Park so that she can actually speak on behalf of constituents. But ultimately, the issue here for Sarah Jamma was, you know, um, it seemed like the NDP, the party at Queen's Park, had actually kind of made some overtures to her. She says that they haven't reached out, but they indicated to us that, you know, they did make some overtures to her. And I think the, the, the moment that really turned the entire relationship on its head was the day that she got censured. The NDP had worked with Sarah Jamma to you know, say a carefully curated statement inside the legislature that would have both satisfied the NDP and Sarah Jama. Instead, Jama, the NDP says, tore up that piece of paper and essentially read whatever statement she wanted, which was, you know, to condemn Israel and to call it an apartheid in her words. And so I think that was when the NDP found uh, this might be a personality issue that and it might be too big, big of a bridge to to cross. Um, although, you know, Sarah Jama seems to have a lot of supporters within the NDP, within the grassroots of the NDP. So this is a story that largely is 
still to be written the end of this story. Mm. Uh, that is Colin DeMello. He is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Always appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It is uh, that, that, that Sarah Jamma story. It, there is more to be written here, but I do, uh, I do think it's an interesting move here that this is no longer just seen as Merritt Stiles, that the entire party that she had run with and run for has now said, no, thank you. That is, that is very different from just a leader saying, yeah, get out of here. It really is. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Joel Hoekstra is lead guitarist of Trans-Siberian Orchestra joins us now. Joel, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time out and having me on. Oh, listen, I, I'm I'm thrilled to have you on. I absolutely, we, it's been a couple of years since we've been to see you guys, but it is uh, always one of the best things about Christmas. Honestly, it really is. Love it. The, the, the one year we sat right in the front row and other than the fact that we were nearly charbroiled from the flame pots, which was fantastic. It was a very warm <laughs> place. It was, it's a, it's a fantastic show. What do you say to people who have not seen or heard Trans-Siberian Orchestra? How do you describe what it is? It's a very difficult show to describe. It's a hybrid of lots of different elements. There's a story on the front half, so you get a, a rock opera, if you will. And this year, it's uh, The Ghosts of Christmas Eve is the story that you get on the front half. And it's sort of uh, musically based on a greatest hits or a best of, if you will. So it's a great year if you haven't seen Trans-Siberian to come out because you'll hear all the music that put us on the map and made us who we are today. And the second half is a little bit more of a free-for-all that focuses on the magnitude of the production, which those that haven't seen TSO, it's just gigantic. Yep. We have a video wall, the, the, the width of the arena. Um, we've got a Pink Floyd-esque laser light show happening throughout the entire show. Um, we've got pyrotechnics, like you mentioned, um, performers on moving hydraulic lifts out over the audience, uh, performers running through the audience playing for you so there's not a bad seat in the house. Um, musically, you're talking kind of a hybrid of rock with classical and even other elements, um, certainly the theatricality um, and the front half um, all kind of mixed together. Um, so I'd, I'd say, you know, the the some of the elements you'd compare to a standard rock concert, like maybe a Kiss show or something like that with like the hydraulic lifts and the pyrotechnics, <laughs> et cetera. But um, it, it's a wonderful show. Um, it's just, you know, the, obviously the, the creation of Paul O'Neill and, um, I'm sure when he drew this up on paper, there were a lot of people scratching their heads and raising their eyebrows going, you think this is going to sell out arenas? And here we are playing Scotiabank two shows in one day. We're able to sell the arena usually out twice a day at most of these places that we go to. So um, it's amazing to be a part of. I'm always interested in the people who play in this about your background, because clearly there is, as you say, there's the rock element of it, which is obvious, but also it's unusual because you're playing a lot of classical music in that style. What's your background? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I, I'm a really good fit for Trans-Siberian um, because, you know, I grew up with classical parents and they had me playing uh, cello and piano at a very young age. And I was always, I grew up around classical music. And then also interesting is that I ended up moving to New York City and playing on Broadway quite a bit, especially um, in the musical Rock of Ages. I was with that for its entire run over six years in New York. So um, I, and of course I've been in rock bands. I'm in the band White Snake, and uh, previously was in the band Night Ranger. So 
you take all those things and put them together and it's kind of like, hey, you know, it made me a really good fit for this. Yeah, no kidding. And and I, as I say, I'm always amazed when um, the first time someone sees this who doesn't know what they're getting into. And it's either you are a classical fan who is kind of shocked by what you're hearing or it's you're a rock fan who's kind of shocked by what you're hearing. Nobody is not shocked by what happens at this. It's, you know, I... As cliche as it, there's something in this for for everybody. So we see uh, on a regular basis families three generations deep out there because the kids love just looking at it all. They see all the video and the fire and you know the the fog and the lasers and lights and they they just think it's amazing to watch. And you know the older audiences tend to really enjoy the story on the front half. It puts them in the holiday spirit. And then there's people in my generation who are there because it's a rock show and they go, hey, I like this. You know, it's musically, it's really fun and to listen to um, cool hybrid of all of those elements. And, you know, Paul really he stumbled into something that uh, has become a tradition for many, many people. I, I often joke that we're the Grateful Dead of Christmas. I mean, we have people that come like, you know, <laughs> follow us from city to city and come to multiple shows and. Um, I mean, now we're, we've played to over 18 million people since this started, and we're always one of the top Billboard Polestar tours every single year. So it's incredible to be a part of. Um, there's just some incredible numbers that speak to the popularity. Over the past five years, we have close to 750 million audio video streams. Um, we're just, you know, we've really become ingrained in North American Christmas culture at this point in time. And and that's really incredible. And just before we let you go, because the, I mean, this is a Christmas thing, so you're not together all year. What, what happens like every year? Is it the same folks that with whatever band you're in Whitesnake is whatever bands you're playing, you just come back and do this. Is there a lineup to get in because of this, how does it work? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially how it works. Everybody kind of blocks out these two months with whatever else they're doing. And um, you commit yourself to Trans-Siberian for essentially November and December. Um, although, you know, we do begin working on the music before that uh, individually, before we get to rehearsals. And uh, certainly production works year-round. That That's a, like a nonstop job, like putting together what no the doubt. stage is going to look like. And yeah, so they're always hard at work. It is, uh, again, if, no, if you have not seen this before, you really should. It is, um, I'm not being paid to say this, it is one of the great shows out there. It is so much fun to, to go see. Joel Hoekstra, lead guitarist for Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Really appreciate it, Joel. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate appreciate you helping us get the word out and uh, looking forward to seeing you all again. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.